I think it goes back to what our mission is or our vision for the company, which is like healthcare for Africa's next billion. Even though it's just a tagline, but I really believe that we can do that. I think that we can impact a billion lives by building great healthcare for people. And given the growing population of Africans, I think the continent's population will double by 2050 or thereabouts. So in five years from now, I want to be well on my way to that billion number. I think that last month we celebrated 100,000 visits to our centers. I hope five years from now we're doing millions of visits and we genuinely believe in what we are building. And if not us, who? We have to be the ones building the future we want. And so I think that time and time again, I think just being true to who we are as a team has just been a hack to make decisions. What's up, Unfound Nation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Olawashoga Oni, co-founder and CEO of MDAS Global, a company that is building Africa's largest network of physical and virtual diagnostic and primary care facilities. He and his team are determined to provide quality and affordable health care for the continent's next billion. Shorga, as he's known, grew up in a rural town in Nigeria, surrounded by a family of doctors and medical professionals. And while he didn't have the calling himself, he saw firsthand the gaps and challenges faced by providers. His love of tinkering and problem solving led him to software development and work in the U.S. But it was his time at MIT where he was challenged by one of his professors, come up with a business that will impact a billion people. And so MDAS Global was born. Since inception, the company has pivoted from a medical equipment supplier to a full stack of diagnostic and testing centers, where MDAS focuses on patient experience on-site and prevention and wellness when patients are at home or on the go. The company is backed by the likes of Techstars, Google for Startups, and the Jack Ma Foundation. Shorga has a great story. You'll want to listen in. Our episode is sponsored by The Plug. Sherelle Dorsey and her team have become the source for unique and insightful data and stories about Black professionals and the Black founder ecosystem. They have stuff you won't find anywhere else, including industry briefs and member-only access sessions with leading innovators. For more information on The Plug, look for a link in the show notes. Before we continue, Please make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. We're available anywhere you get your podcasts, even YouTube. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. And if you like what you hear, drop us a review on Apple or at podchaser.com. Now on with the episode, stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is the latest episode in our continuing series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Olawa Shorga Oni, co-founder and CEO of MDAS Global, a company that is building Africa's largest network of physical and virtual diagnostic and primary care facilities ultimately to provide quality and affordable health care for the continent's next billion. Welcome to the show, Shorga. We're super excited to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Nice to have me here. I'm looking forward to today and having share my journey and my story. Awesome. So I gave a brief introduction for the company, but maybe you can tell our audience, what exactly is MDAS and what are you trying to solve? MDAS, um, we are building the fastest growing network of diagnostic 
facilities right now in Nigeria and hopefully across Africa. And the problem we're solving is lack of access to high quality, but also very critical diagnostics. As you know, over 70% of all doctors' visits would result into a diagnostic test being done. But unfortunately, millions of Africans don't have access to that diagnostics. What that means is that you're unable to make better decisions so that people can get better. And that's what we're solving. We want everyone that needs diagnostics to have diagnostics. I love it. And this is such a powerful, big vision that you have from talking with you before. And we're going to get deeper into that and find out exactly where MDAS Global is going. But before we go there, let's find out about you. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? So, yeah, I grew up in Nigeria, and which explains why my work is in Nigeria, right? I grew up in a small town six hours away from Lagos, the commercial capital of the country. I'm in a really small town. My dad was a medical doctor. And funny enough, everybody in my family right now works in the healthcare sector in, the, in Nigeria, in the UK, in the US, and in Canada. Everybody, even my sisters and the husbands, which is very funny. So we all grew up being close to that sector because my dad was a medical doctor. My mom was a teacher. She runs our own high school that we all went to. And so it was a really small town and I loved my childhood growing up. So yeah, that's where I'm from. That's interesting. So growing up in a small town, and I I hear both perspectives. I wonder how you thought about it. Did you feel like this was such a great, simple life? I have what I need. Or did you have this sense of like, there's bigger places out there and there's places I want to strive to. How did you think about it when you were growing up? To be honest, when I was growing up, I just didn't know much about the world out there, right? The small town was your world, was your universe, you know? So everything revolves around all the things that you do in the small town. And so, yeah, at that point, I didn't really have this world view where like, you know, I want to see the whole world or whatnot. But that obviously changed as I grew older, went to school, went to college, and then, you know, and now I don't know if I could live in that small town. It's way too small for me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But at the time, that small town was my universe. It was how I learned about the world at the time. And so you said that basically the constellation of your family is all around the healthcare space. Did you feel any draw or maybe even a little pressure from your parents to become a doctor? Oh, absolutely. And it wasn't like my parents pressured me. It was that that's what everybody around me, you know, was doing or aspired to. Of course, many people didn't get there, but that's a lot of what people aspired to. And so for all of my dad's friends, at least one of their kids is always a doctor. One of them would take to the family business, you know. (laughs) if we can call it that. And so for me, I was lucky because I was one of six kids. So my older brother is actually an orthopedic surgeon now. And, you know, it was the doctor was the one that had the most pressure because it was the first boy, first born. So a lot of the pressure was more on him. And for me, I actually went to the engineering route. So I was an engineer by training. So I never felt the need. It was when I was trying to do something that I felt called into that line again because I just, by being around Edcare, I just know a lot about it. I know because my parents share a lot, my brothers share a lot. So I, I knew a lot of information about that, which when I was looking for a problem to solve, it made sense that I solved something in, in Edcare because that was what I knew, right? So that's how it came to be. So where are you in the board order? You said yes. I'm lucky number three. 
number three. So you're right in, right in the middle. Right in the middle. So was there a moment when you thought, I'm probably going to be a doctor? And then what was the thing that said, no, I don't think I'm going to be a doctor? Like, what was the epiphany or the realization where you said, yeah, that's not the route that I'm going to take? Yeah. So for me, pretty early on, I knew that I didn't want to be a doctor. Even though I knew that, you know, there was a lot of pressure to do medicine, I wasn't never really interested in it. I didn't feel like it was my calling or anything. And I felt like I saw my dad spend a lot of long hours, you know, working, doing his his rounds. And that didn't sound enticing to me at all. I didn't want that to be my life. So big props for all of the doctors out there. They're really doing a lot of work, you know. So, so yeah. So I didn't really want to be a doctor. So I went the engineering route from the, you know, when I was a kid. I never really liked biology or, no, I was more interested in physics and maths. And so, like, I just didn't feel like there was a space for me in medicine itself. That's a great story. And, you know, I think that sometimes people come from backgrounds where the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And then there's other situations where the apple wants to fall very, very far from the tree. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so you gravitate towards math, sort of the, what we call the STEM stuff these days. You're drawn to engineering. Were you thinking about what you wanted to do for a career or where you wanted to go for a college? Like when you're coming up through high school, what was your thinking about where do I want to go? So I knew that I loved to tinker with stuff. Like I love to tear down our radio sets at home and put them back together. Ever since I was a kid, I was really curious about how things work. So if I see something, I want to like understand how it works. And so when I was in high school, I just knew that I wanted to do computer engineering also because, you know, at the time, computers was getting more popular in Nigeria. And I felt like well, this was something totally new that it would be interesting to even know how everything worked in this box, you know. And so I ended up studying computer engineering in undergrad in Nigeria and doing that for five years. After doing that, like, you know, I felt like, yes, I knew how a computer worked, but then I felt like, you know, I was still missing something. I wanted to learn more. And at the time, obviously, Nigeria was starting to become very small for me. Like, I wanted to leave. A lot of my siblings had already left the country to go to school in the U.S. or Canada or the U.K. And so because of that, I also was, like, inclined to leave the country. So I actually came to the U.S. to study electrical engineering. So I did computer engineering in my undergrad. I did electrical engineering degree at Illinois Tech in Chicago for my master's. And I think at that point, doing that master's degree, I started to figure out where my interests were. At that point in time, it was like, oh, software engineering. So I actually became a software engineer writing code. And so I moved to Boston, where I am today, to take a job. At Dell EMC, it was EMC then, but Dell bought over them. And so we became a software engineer there and worked there for a few years. And it was after working for a few years there, I was like, you know what? Now I have all of this specialized knowledge about how things worked. I really wanted to see if I can contribute back to my country. At the time, this was, I think, 2011, 2012. I'd worked for a couple of years and I was like, I wanted to contribute back to my country. At the time, not like now where tech was a lot more global, there wasn't any role for me as a, you know, very hyper-specialized backend engineer in Nigeria. So I was like, if I wanted to go back, I wanted to do something that mattered. And how do you put it? I was just tired of being a clock in a huge wheel. I didn't feel like I mattered. 
And so I didn't have a lot of purpose. My work was easy enough for me to do that I can work for two weeks. I can crack it out and do it in three days. So I had a lot of downtime where, you know, I, I finished my work. I started learning a lot about entrepreneurship. And that was super interesting to me. And I remember thinking that, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if I could go back to Nigeria to do something that really, really mattered, where I won't be just a clog in this giant wheel, but I would be pushing the boundaries of what could be. Before we go deeper into that, I want to rewind a little bit. So I think a lot of people take for granted that, that when people come to this country, to the United States, it's everything they wanted it to be, and it's this big dream. I got to hear a little bit about what it's like to go from a small environment, rural Nigeria, to a cold, big city like Chicago, and to a university setting like that. And, and probably your older siblings helped to prepare you about what would be like. But tell us a little bit about what was that adjustment like? Was it easy? Was it hard? Were there things that you just didn't expect? I moved to, to Chicago in January, so in the middle of the winter, which was super cold. And I was coming from Lagos, which is like, you know, over 90 degree weather at the time. It was just a weather shock. Nobody prepares you for that, you know. But for me, I lived in a big city. Lagos is a huge city. Lagos is bigger than Chicago. But Chicago was totally different because I was moving to Chicago in the winter. So everybody is mostly indoors. And it was a winter where there was a lot of big storms. So I remember like, my hair is almost freezing a lot of the times because <laughs> I would forget to wear something and I would go out and I just remember that, oh, damn, I forgot. And I want to power through the work to school and then realize that, no, that was the wrong idea to do. <laughs> so, and then there's also the culture shock, right, where, you know, you're just in a new environment and you have to adapt to a totally new culture of people looking at you slightly differently. You know, when you're in Nigeria as a Nigerian, you're not black, you're in Nigerian. You know, but when you get into the U.S., you become black. You know, you understand, okay, now these people see me as black. They see me this way. They see me that way. And just like also the educational system in the U.S., the at least the college, the university system is so different from the Nigerian university system where like as a student, you're being pushed to challenge your, your lecturers, like your professors, and where you can just, you know, have a conversation with your professor. In Nigeria, your professor mostly just talk at, at you and just teach you, and then you just, you know, take everything, and then when, when they give you an exam, you just pour it back for them. Give them what they gave you. For me, I'm one of those guys that I want to learn. I don't care about passing exams as much, but I care about learning. And so it's definitely worked in my favor that I could come in here and learn in stuff in a way that has helped me in, in my career. I'm hearing definitely some entrepreneurial DNA with the restlessness of not wanting to be a cog and this idea of learning and pursuit of learning as opposed to pursuit of, what do they call it, rubrics, right? Like, I just need to do what I need to do to get the A. So you're basically deciding, I want to do something different and I want to give back to my home country. What happened at that inflection point? So what happened was I started talking to my brother about it, who at the time was already a doctor in the U.S. And of course, you know, we were passing up ideas. I knew I wanted to do something in the healthcare sector at that point. So in, we just bounced out idea, but I didn't feel I was prepared for it. I felt like there was a lot of things I just didn't know. And so I was like, I would either have to go for an MBA to become more knowledgeable about how to run a business or whatnot. 
But then my manager at the time was a student at MIT and told me about this program, this systems engineering program at MIT that combines engineering with like, you know, some business education. And I was like, sign me up for it. So I applied to that program and got into it the next year. And that program pretty much changed my life in that I was in going to school with the best of the best. And my program had a lot of, you know, people that were high level C-suite people already, like, you know, and then a lot of military people. So you get to learn a lot from your classmates as well as your, your lecturers. And then just being around an environment where everybody's building. That's one thing I love about MIT. Everybody's building. You know, when I was in Chicago, I didn't see a lot of people building stuff actively around me. So even when I thought about like, maybe this was a pathway for me, I couldn't think about like, it's like, well, I will be the weird one doing it here. But at MIT, you're not the weird one. If you're not doing nothing, then you're the weird one, right? Everybody has a side project they're working on that is really cool. It might be just a hobby. It might be something that they just do for fun. But everybody has something they're working on that is really interesting. And, and they have very interesting stories and they come from very interesting backgrounds and stuff. And so being around that environment just kind of like catalyzed me in some amazing ways. That's so important. I think people don't think about that, just how the environment can be reinforcing like that, right? Like when you're in these places like Silicon Valley or a place like MIT or places that become innovation hubs, it's really like this idea that there's many, you know, electrons that are bouncing around off of each other as opposed to that one person who's like, I'm going to just stay in my basement and I'm going to do it. And I've got no support. I've got no role models. I've got no infrastructure. So we're going to take a short break and we're going to hear how MIT translated into Ask Global. But we'll be right back with Sugar Oni from MDAS Global. Who gets to be called innovative or genius? If we look at the current media landscape today, we often don't see people of color dominating the business or tech news headlines. I'm Sherelle Dorsey, data journalist and founder of The Plug. Our work in reporting has been featured in and used by top names like Vice, The Information, and casting directors at ABC Shark Tank. The Plug cuts out the noise to bring you news, insights, and analysis of trends shaping venture capital, startups, policy, and ecosystems within Black innovation communities. Join our annual pro membership and get exclusive access to our weekly long-form reporting and monthly member calls, which puts you directly at the table with leading innovators and firms around the country. Also access our data libraries of indexes, such as our Black-owned VC firms index or the top 100 Black researchers in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Use code UNFOUND to save $10 on our annual subscription at tpinsights.com. That's T as in the and P as in plug, insights.com. Okay, so we're back. So Shorga, tell us about your MIT journey and how MDAS emerged from that. Yeah, so getting to the MIT campus was great. And as soon as I got there, I was like thinking about what I could do. And I was lucky enough to take a class called Development Ventures. It's this class taught by this very cool and a little bit eccentric guy called Joost. And Joost gives you a challenge for that class. It says, hey, for this class, your goal is to ideate an idea that can impact a billion lives. And the only caveat I'm going to give to you is that, you know, you don't have to impact a billion lives right from the get-go, but it must be something where you can scale it up to impact a billion lives. And so just thought about some of the problem my dad was facing at that time, which is around, you know, getting access to high-quality medical equipment he can use in his practice. 
in the small town I grew up in. So I was like, hey, this is a challenge I can take on. I'm an engineer, trained engineer, and looks easy enough. So in a couple of years, I'll be done, move on to the next thing, you know. So for that class, I created some materials, built a team around it. And funny enough, one of the guys I met during that class still is Joe, leads our supply chain operations in the U.S. now. And so we met during that class and then we started talking about how are we going to solve it. So at that time, our solution was very simple. It's ridiculously simple. And also, you know, that's probably why it didn't work. We didn't really understand the challenge at its core. It was something that we saw that was happening that we said, okay, that's the problem. So we should, you know, solve it. We didn't really understand what drove what we saw, right? And so we decided that, hey, a lot of African hospitals don't just have access to the equipment they need. And when they have the the equipment, they break down very often. And what that leads to is like what you call an equipment graveyard that you see in almost every hospital. And my dad also has his own equipment graveyard where he just throws all of the old medical equipment that he couldn't fix. And so that's what we set out to do, where we will say, hey, there's a lot of equipment in the U.S. There's 20 billion in equipment just sitting on shelves on the secondary market in the U.S. 20 billion of medical equipment that could be useful in other clients. So we're like, we're just going to bridge that gap, take those equipment from the U.S. to Nigeria and provide a lot of technical support for them to make those equipment operational at all times, and which is what we set out to do with our first couple of years. So. That's how the idea evolved from something we did in a class to a natural business. And what is very interesting about this was that, you know, Yost, the professor, encouraged us to apply for many competitions as part of the class. In fact, our finance for the class is just a bunch of the application that we've put in for many competitions. And then by the end of that class, I'd gotten one of them. And that came with $20,000 in grant money. And an offer to come to Nigeria to go to South Africa to learn about, to be a part of an accelerator program. So that just worked out for me. It was like, I got lucky in that regard. Interesting. Sometimes these things are like opportunity meets preparedness. This is a great story. So do you think, were you convinced already to do the business and to move forward? Or was this sort of like that catalyst, like, how can I not do this now? Like, where were you in sort of the decision from taking it from a class project? to an actual business? So it was the money, the $20,000. I've never seen money that big in my life before. (laughs) Keeping it real. I love it. You know, it came with free flights to Nigeria. And it's not like I've not seen money that big before. It was the fact that someone cared enough by just a random idea I ideated to say, hey, I'm going to back you with $20,000. I believe in you. And I feel like That was the push for me that, you know what, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is something. Maybe I should give this a shot. And of course, at that time, I was naive about how the world works, you know, so I felt like everything I want, I can get, you know, like I feel like it just makes sense that I just go since now I have it. Now, looking back at that, I was like, actually, I had a choice not to go. I didn't know. You know, so it was a fun story. But the funny thing is that Accelerator right now, they're still on our cap table and I still touch base with them and they've been supportive. In fact, that Accelerator itself closed, but the guy that runs it still, you know, is actually quite big in Nigeria. He runs one of the biggest educational institutions in, in Africa, African Leadership Academy and University. And even though the Accelerator itself did not work out, He's also always supported us. And so throughout, you know, our journey 
in very subtle ways that I'm really glad we made that decision to join that accelerator. That's cool. And again, I'm hearing a couple things. One is this idea that you have validation, right? I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they have a question or a challenge or a problem they're trying to solve and they start to work on it and they're getting nothing back, right? They're getting no confirmation from customers or partners or investors. A signal like you got is very strong, right? And, and so it's almost like this binary journey of like, oh, okay, now we have momentum auto, you know, just out of the gate, right? And the other thing is this idea of the fact that people who back you tend to be folks who are invested in you and the relationship and for the long journey, especially if they come in early when you don't really have anything yet. It's really about your vision and you as an entrepreneur. And those relationships can really stand the test of time. So let's move into like, you start the company, you're focused on equipment, essentially, right? Becoming a supplier. And at some point you realize there's a different opportunity and the company changes direction. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So we started the business given what we know. In fact, I wrote my thesis on the business at MIT, moved back, got my first few customers. My dad was my number one customer because he actually needed the equipment. And so him and a, a couple of his friends became my first set of customers. I supplied them x-rays, patient monitors, and you know ECG machines and whatnot. Supplied a bunch to them. That was in 2016. By 2017, it was clear to us that we weren't seeing any of the traction that we thought we had been promised, you know, by the market. The market doesn't respect if you're coming from MIT or not. <laughs> doesn't. <laughs> so it was pretty clear to us at that point that the opportunity was so different. And funny enough, we knew that the problem was still there. People still didn't have diagnostics, right? But we realized that the economic model, the sustainable economic model for those equipments doesn't just exist if we focused on supplying equipment to doctors. Because when you look at it, most doctors don't have a lot of patients. You know, they have maybe 20 patients a day or 30 patients a day, let's say for a busy guy. And maybe, you know, 10 of them need your x-ray. Or most likely five of them will need an x-ray that day, right? And then at that point, it doesn't make sense for you to go spend $100,000 buying an x-ray machine. So we started seeing that, hey, the market was not what we thought it was. That yes, there was a problem with like the healthcare infrastructure, that the underfunded, under-resourced healthcare infrastructure across board, across the country. But more importantly, the current economic model that we see around didn't work to deliver access to diagnostics because you don't have enough patients that can pay you to use those equipments. And most patients in Nigeria, most of the payments comes out of pocket. Over 90% is out of pocket payments, right? So that means for our initial model, it was pretty much doomed from the start, really. All of our naysayers were right. But what we saw was that, hey, there was an opportunity to aggregate all of these mom and pop healthcare facilities together and become their diagnostic provider. And we've seen cases of that working in bigger cities, but we see that outside bigger cities, they were just mostly abandoned. A lot of the bigger players don't want to go into those types of cities. So we decided to become that aggregator. So we would provide all of the equipment, x-ray, ultrasound, ECG, a fully automated lab at a local level within a community, within an underserved community, and then partner with all of the local clinics, pharmacies, PHCs, primary care health centers. And so we're able to deliver diagnostics to them. 
And so we, by guaranteeing our own volumes, can make the economic model work for those equipments, which is what we did. So in November of 2017, our business was literally on its last legs. My wife also happens to be one of our co-founders. So at the time, she'd just gotten into MIT. And so she's left a job as an associate director at, at the foundation. And so somehow she was able to convince our old boss to invest 50K in our business just because of the, you know, my wife used to work for her. And that money, we use it to build our first diagnostic center in a tier two city. So in Ibadan, called Ibadan. When the numbers started coming out over the first three months, we knew that this was the model because we saw that people started coming to our centers right from the get-go. And because they, we focused on three key things, we focused on providing a great patient experience. People like to be treated well, surprisingly, and which includes like having a great ambience for our centers. Number two, having equipment that can deliver really great clinical accuracy. So paying a little bit extra to be able to deliver better resolutions for our ultrasound machine so that when people have questions they really want to answer, we will be that first point of call. And of course, having great clinicians. So we invest, we pay above market rates for our clinicians so we can have great clinical reporting. And finally, we focus on fast turnaround times. We want to make sure that people are able to get their result on time. And those three key things as just, just when we went into the markets, just kind of like disrupted the market massively, you know, because before we came there, the players that were in those places, because this was a really, really underserved community, felt like they were doing the community a favor. So they don't care about you waiting for like five hours in their centers. They will attend to you when they attend to you. In fact, we took a tour of many of these diagnosis centers to experience what care was there before we started. And at that point, I knew I had a feeling that we were going to be okay. If this was what we were competing against, that, that we would be okay. And coming from people who never operated a clinical facility before. Sometimes that's the key, right? Sometimes it's you don't have pre-existing biases or like this is the way it's always been done or so sometimes it takes you know fresh eyes to disrupt things like that i have a question around sort of like because i'm not as familiar with how healthcare works in nigeria so the diagnostic part of it do patients come at the behest of the doctors or do they come thinking well i just need to get checked out and then is diagnostics also out of pocket at that point yeah that's a great question so most of our patients actually come to us via their, their primary care doctor. So they will go to their doctors first and then they come to us. So initially, our biggest customers were actually the hospitals because they're the ones referring to us. But what is interesting about it is that even though they're getting referred to us from the hospital, the patients are paying cash up front for it. Got it. And in fact, what is funny is that the patients prefer to pay more for diagnostics than to pay more for consultation. Because for consultation, you're just having a conversation with someone, right? So they feel like, oh, come on, I can't pay you $10 for it. Like, we go to the same church, come on, man. When they come to me, right, when they come to our centers and they see the nice ambience, they see like our x-ray machines and our ultrasound machines, very imposing. They're just like, yeah, I think I need to pay here. I think I need to pay something. So. That's really great customer insight. That's awesome. So this is an awesome model. I mean, it feels very much like Quest or LabCorp here in the United States. So we are literally the Quest on LabCorp of Nigeria. And I think the vision for us is to become the LabQuest for Africa, you know. But right now, we are actually 
by just number of um, locations we have. I think we're probably the third largest in the country, and we just have 15 locations. And by next year, we'll double it to 30 locations. And at that point, we'll probably be the largest because, you know, it's a very highly fragmented space, you know, that it doesn't take you much to become the largest. If that's the funny thing about fragmented spaces, right? You know, it's very fragmented. Most of the diagnostic centers that are the top tier diagnostic centers are only in the big cities. They're not trying to go to the smaller, tiny cities that like we are. And so the company now has also made another big leap. I don't know if you want to call it an evolution, but this new grand vision around the Sentinel X. Tell us a little bit about what that's about and where you're going with that. Before I talk a little bit about Sentinel X, I want to explain a little bit about our thesis, you know. Sure. Our core thesis is that the most important thing right now is to build scalable infrastructure for Africans everywhere they need it. In a way that is sustainable, because sustainability is what ensures that you scale. But once you do that, you can deploy more digital tech products through those physical networks. So we're building that first layer, that physical layer that you need that to be able to deploy a lot of digital tech tech products like Sentinel-X. And so to just to explain Sentinel-X, so Sentinel-X came out of actually our COVID work where we we're doing a lot of screenings for people. And at the time, COVID didn't hit Nigeria as much as it hits the US or whatnot. So we we're doing a lot of screening for people, but we we're realizing that most people didn't have COVID, but what they have was a lot of pre-existing conditions. Right. So a lot of people were hypertensive, particularly people in the big cities like Lagos and Abuja were hypertensive or pre-diabetic. Or they have like, you know, their lipids were messed up and they didn't know this, you know. So we screened them for the first time and then we were like, wow, you're too young to have these numbers. But people just didn't know because, you know, when you're getting worse, you don't know, you know, you just slowly, it happens over a long period of time. And so we were thinking to ourselves is how can we make sure that people know this, that they can you know, focus on preventive care rather than, you know, waiting to get sick before, you know, they go get care. And one thing we also know is that preventive care is much, 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 much cheaper than when you have dealing with like, you know, cancer or like heart issues or many other, these other things you could do it or liver, kidney issues, whatnot. So how can we get people to do that? And we're able to do this because we have this network of centers where now we've built a digital tech product called Sentinel-X. It's a preventive care platform where, you know, we're able to provide screenings for people, but not just screenings, we provide you the clinical reporting that comes with a lot of recommendations for, for you through an app or via WhatsApp or even via phone call. So we have multiple channels for that. And then we can introduce you to a dietitian that can help you plan your diet and track you over time, as well as a fitness instructor if you need to move more and whatnot. So it's like this like ecosystem of services we're offering to you just on a simple platform so that people can make sure that they are healthy. And so when your numbers are getting a little bit worse, you can easily know. So like, you know, last summer I'm on the program and last summer I was, you know, I was excited to be back after all of the COVID stuff, you know? So I was eating a lot of steak in the US and, you know, messed up my lipids a little bit. And when I go back <laughs> to Nigeria, I was like, oh, I messed up my lipids. Now I have to work hard at it. <laughs> and, you know, fixed it because I do this every year and I can, you know, I'm part of the program. I am able to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm okay over time. That's the beauty of the program. So, so yeah, and we're hoping to do more digital tech products like that. So Sentinex is one of the many ideas we have. It was just the first one we launched. I love it. And if I step back and look at your journey, you went from opportunistic part of a market 
basically being almost arbitrage, like, hey, I can bring equipment in cheaper, to, well, we can verticalize because there's these other aspects of how this system is broken and a poor experience for customers. But now you're talking about something that's society changing, right? That is this idea that you don't just fix people when they're broken, because by then, a lot of times it's both expensive and hard to do. Let's help people have a journey of health you know, throughout their lives so that they have those early indications of potential problems, diseases, conditions that might emerge, and try to nip them in the bud, as they say, before they get into a situation where they're chronic or irreversible. I think it's an amazing and ambitious program. And it's one of those things where COVID was very binary for people, right? Like some businesses are just crushed it, right? Like if you were in travel, for instance, right? Like it was done and some didn't survive if you're a small restaurant, right? But there's other businesses like yours. That's just an amazing story that like, hey, we're checking people for COVID. Wait a minute. (laughs) We're getting all this other information and there's opportunities to help people in other ways. So I think it's an amazing evolution for your company. So we're going to take another short break, but we'll be right back with Shorga Oni from MDAS Global. Who gets to be called innovative or genius? If we look at the current media landscape today, we often don't see people of color dominating the business or tech news headlines. I'm Sherelle Dorsey, data journalist and founder of The Plug. Our work in reporting has been featured in and used by top names like Vice, The Information, and casting directors at ABC Shark Tank. The Plug cuts out the noise to bring you news, insights, and analysis of trends shaping venture capital, startups, policy, and ecosystems within Black innovation communities. Join our annual pro membership and get exclusive access to our weekly long-form reporting and monthly member calls, which puts you directly at the table with leading innovators and firms around the country. Also access our data libraries of indexes, such as our Black-owned VC firms index or the top 100 Black researchers in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Use code UNFOUND to save $10 on our annual subscription at tpinsights.com. That's T as in the and P as in plug, insights.com. We're back with Shorga Oni from MDAS Global. And so, Shorga, I want to know, if I show up in your life, let's say five years from now, 10 years from now, and you tell me MDAS was a wild success, what's going to be your measure for that? How are you going to explain to me that this thing was just a rocket ship that took off and we were able to achieve X, Y, and Z? What are the things that you would use as sort of your North Star for knowing that your company successful? I think it goes back to what our mission is or our vision for the company, which is like, Edcare for Africa's next billion. Like I really, even though it's just a tagline, but I really believe that we can do that. I think that we can impact a billion lives by building great healthcare for people. And given the growing population of Africans, I think the continent's population will double by 2050 or thereabouts. So, so yeah, in five years from now, I want to be well on my way to that billion dollar number. I think that last month we celebrated a hundred thousand visits to our centers. I hope five years from now we're doing millions of visits. Amazing. And that's what I thought you would say. So <laughs> makes a lot of sense. So let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about your fundraising journey. I know you've had a couple of rounds. You Like you mentioned, you had some grants early on. Tell us a little bit about how that's gone and a little bit about the, the investors that have that believed in you and have bet on you. We've had a very interesting fundraising journey because, you know, for I had that 20,000 that gave me that push, then some family and friends as we were about to start, and then nothing 
for the next two years, like from 2016 to maybe like 2018, there was nothing, nothing. We just had to survive and figure things out by ourselves. But once we got the, that first center going and the numbers started coming out, we were lucky enough to get into Techstars. And also before that, just before we got into Techstars, we met a Nigerian investor, amazing Nigerian investor, biggest, one of our, I'm a big fan, Ventures Platform. And Ventures Platform pretty much just bet on us three weeks in because they just liked the business so much that they were like, you know what? We're going to give you a $100,000 check to keep going. And then we got into Techstars also. So that started to give us some confidence about our business. And that got us through the year. And post-Texters, we were able to raise another round, about a million dollars. We grew from one center to five centers with our money. And then just learn about how to operate, just instead of just one center, operating five locations. And then luckily for us, in between the journey, sometimes in 2019, we applied for Africans Business Euro, which is a huge competition in Africa. And we were lucky to be one of the winners. We were runners up and we won a big check, $250,000. Is that the Jack Ma program? That's the Jack Ma Foundation. Yeah. And that was amazing because it just gives, number one, that validation matters. You know, the PR you get from that. We were on the TV show, you know, just introduced a lot more people to us. And they've been, even post-program, they've been also amazing. Even though, you know, that program happened in the middle of COVID, you know, they still made it happen. And we were lucky to be one of those winners because that money was catalytic to us at that point in time. And then last year, we were even thinking about raising, but, you know, there was an opportunity to raise because we found another amazing investor called Newtown. And so they led our C2, seed extension. Now we have... 15 centers. So with that money, we were able to grow from five centers to 15 centers. And now we're looking for the next round. So I'm currently fundraising. Hopefully we're done by the end of the year or thereabouts so that we can go from 15 centers to 40 centers, which would be really amazing. So tell me though, when you were in the journey, so I mean, you just went through kind of maybe like a half a dozen investors. In those steps though, did you have to do a lot of meetings where you got no's? Did you focus only on people who had a context or a thesis around Africa? How did you figure out how to align yourself with the investors that ended up investing in you? Earlier on, we were just talking to every Tom Dick and Harry that had investor in their byline, which is bad. Don't do that. And so we were obviously not unsuccessful. But once we got into textures, what going through textures does for you is just kind of like teaches you some of the rules of the game. We were recommended to reach venture deals. And so our understanding of that also started improving. And so for our texters, we had a pipeline. We tried to focus as much on, you know, who would give us money in Africa. Eventually, what we found out that there was three buckets of people who wants to give us money, either African VCs who understand the market and really want to do work in Africa, impact foundations who like what we're doing. We open them advance a lot of what they're trying to do. And at least earlier on, they were like angels who just liked our team, who just felt like, I know they're doing some things, but like, you know, I think that they seem to know what they're doing. So I'm going to support them. So we had a few of those too, which was surprising because, you know, sometimes you just have to believe in yourself. But when someone's believing you, you know, you're just like, well, that must be nice. At the earliest stages of our seed, that was the uh, focus for those type of people. And we also learned to screen some people impact investors, but they do one investment every five years. You know, 
we don't want to talk to those people because they're not. Or some people, we had a case where we worked with like a fund that was a university fund that just wasted our time. And, you know, just because they're using us as a way for their students to learn how to do DD, which was not cool. But, you know, but when you work with African startups, people feel like some things are okay. So which, which is not fair. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I, I was just having this conversation, you know, around our fund. And you have to be really careful around not making people feel like they're just being showcased or, you know, sort of presented. There has to be some benefit for the entrepreneur. It was really interesting how you drew this distinction. And I think a lot of Africans who are born on the continent have this of like, I'm in Nigeria, I'm Nigerian, I come to America and I'm Black. And I know that you still spend time here in the United States. Do you feel like a Black entrepreneur often? Is that a daily occurrence to you or something you don't think about until somebody reminds you? How do you process that? Or is that something that just doesn't even occur to you? So for me, either I like it or not, I'm a Black entrepreneur. I cannot hide from that fact. <laughs> so for, for me, it's two things. You know, I'm not just a Black entrepreneur. I'm also an African entrepreneur in that a lot of my work is based in Africa. So even though, yeah, we have our Delaware C-Corp and whatnot, it's something that still, you know, people would want to know, okay, yes, you, because they are Black entrepreneurs, they are Nigerian entrepreneurs that are doing work in the U.S., doing amazing work in the U.S. There are Black entrepreneurs doing work in Africa, you know, like me, that are not Nigerians, but they're doing work in Nigeria and whatnot, you know. So that's something that, you know, I've just, for me, I just accept it. I feel like the work I, in the work I do, I just need to find my own people, the people that believe the work we do. And, you know, if you believe in the work we do and, you know, there's mutual respect, I'm happy to engage. But sometimes, you know, it's easier for, the, particularly in East Africa, right? People complain about like, you know, like it's easier for a white founder in East Africa to get funded than a black founder in East Africa to get funded. Sometimes, you know, the color of the money determines where the money goes to. And, and I feel like maybe this is a call for more Africans and more black funds to exist, right? More funds that target that to say, hey, we're going to support people from this demographic doing work in this place or whatnot. And I think when you look at the quality of the founders, I think you can find really high quality founders on both sides of the, you know, pond, right? But it's just a matter of who gets the opportunity. And for me, we're lucky that we've gotten to this stage that we're in and our work pretty much speaks for, it, speaks for itself now. And also, like, we already know right now also, I'm at a stage where everybody I, I speak to, I already know their track record, right? So I don't need to speak to someone I don't understand. So right now, everybody I'm speaking to, the reason why you're at this stage where I'm speaking to you is because I already know your track record. And there are a few exceptions, but most of the time. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I love it. Like you're kind of flipping the script. You know, I'm going to approach the people that I think will, will be the most benefit to me that will understand what I'm trying to do, that have given some signals to be a believer in the kind of work we're doing. Absolutely. And of course, right now, what are we mostly raised is still chicken change, right? We first $4 million or thereabout. Some founders wouldn't agree with you. It's interesting how the perspective changes yeah, yeah. from $20,000 to $4 million. 
But you're right. You're right. It's not it, it, when you think about what founders receive, it's loose change compared to the tens of billions that every quarter that go into venture. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, I, I think right now we are at this vantage point. Maybe as, of course, as you, the check size gets bigger, then that also changes my perspective also. Right. So, but for me, I'm here for it. I'm here to learn. I love that. One of the things that's interesting I I saw in Silicon Valley, and I think my thinking has come full circle on this, was this idea of people who are related founding companies, right? So either they're a son and a father, a daughter and a father, or a couple that's married. What would you say is the advantages to having a co-founder, which I guess is one of your co-founders is your wife? Yeah, I don't think it's for everybody. So my wife is not a co-founder because she's my wife. My wife is a co-founder because she's amazingly great at what she does. And I couldn't afford someone of pedigree and what she can do otherwise. I just couldn't. I couldn't pay for it. I would have to pay 300 grand for someone like that. I convinced her to say, hey, suffer with me and let's do this together. And so, but she's good. Like, you know, I remember we raised like a 500k check. One of the easiest 500k checks we, we raised and we went on the call and the guy on the end of the call, really successful person in the U.S. said, wow, this is one of the best financial models I've ever seen. Because it's like you outlined everything I needed to see and you like you've thought ahead of me for everything. And even though I've done a lot of work in the public markets, this is the best one I've ever seen. You know, and that's not the only person I've commented on some of our fundraising materials. I think that having her on board just makes it easier on this journey. Of course, there's not so cool part of it is, is that like, you know, there's no separation between work and life. Every year we do a new year resolution and say, hey, work is going to be work and life is going to be life. The next day we are like working at 10, 10 p.m. <laughs> at night together. So, so, but then the next year we do it again. This year is going to be different, but we work really well together. And I'm really grateful that she's on this journey with me. And I have a fun story actually about when she joined. So I had an advisor at that time, really early in the journey, we didn't have any funding then. And the guy said, hey, when I told him that, hey, at the time she was my girlfriend, my girlfriend is going to join the team and I'm going to have to give her some equity because she deserves for, she was already working a lot for us at the time. And I felt weird, you know, she was just working for free. So I felt that, you know, there's a fundamental sense of fairness to that. So I shared with this, my advisor, and the guy's like, bad idea, bad idea. You should never, ever do that. And I was like, well, like my sense of fairness is just doesn't tell me that this is right. So the guy just said, you know what? If you're going to have her join the team, then I cannot be your advisor anymore. And I was like, well, that's really easy decision, really. And so, so. Right. <laughs> advisor or my, ultimately my, well, who's going to be my wife? Yeah. And in some cases, I see, I understand this perspective, but I felt like my wife, Genevieve, um, provides a lot you know she's just she's a force like she does a lot of things for us and we're really happy to have her on board and you know yeah and we work really hard on this together so thanks for sharing that story you know it's really interesting to me we are a little bit of kind of duplicitous right like investors are always talking about like well you want a co-founder who's like it's like you're getting married because you're going to be with that person for for a long time and you have to get along but then when you're actually married to somebody they look at it like oh well hmm that's what's the, what there's a lot of problems with that right so i think it's a really interesting dynamic and i love the way you talked about it like 
if she wasn't your wife, she still she would be this awesome co-founder that is bringing so much to the table. And for a few of my investors, actually, we're the first time they invested in a husband and wife couple. And they look at the business and it's like, well, we like what you're doing. We usually have reservations about this, but like you guys have figured it out. So we're going to let you be. So, so which is great that they're able to change their, their minds about it. Yeah. So you're breaking molds just all over the place. As we get to the end of our time here, we always like to ask sort of this quintessential question. If you could go back in time to, let's just say your software days, because then it seems like at that point, at least you weren't really looking to become an entrepreneur. So if the 2022 version of Shorga could go back to that version and give him advice, what to look out for, what to do, what not to do, what advice would you give him? To always be true to who I am, be unreservedly myself, don't make no excuses for myself. And we have a saying on my team that we dope and we do dope things. That's the PG version. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) You know, and just to be, because in the end, we've been through ups and downs, right? And I think that even when COVID hit, nobody was sure about where the business would go up and down. One of the things that is having that North Star helped us a lot that, hey, this is why we're doing this work and, and we genuinely believe in what we are building. And if not us, who? We have to be the ones building the future we want. And so I think that time and time again, I think just being true to who we are as a team has just been a hack to make decisions. And even when you negotiate with investors, right? And if someone brought something that wasn't like, I'm not like hecky yeah about, that I didn't think that were like a fit, like to who we are, our values, then it doesn't matter how much it is, we would rather just pass. And we've passed on opportunities also that have come because it's not the right fit for us. And sometimes I feel like it's easy to say it, but when you're passing on opportunities because something's not not a right fit for you, that's where you, you know that, hey, this is going to hit me, but like, you know, I'm being true to who I am. I still give myself that advice to always know that, look, because in the end, it's all about having this internal peace or happiness, not really about money. Money can come and go or whatnot. So always having that internal peace and happiness with you, with who you are. And I, for me personally, I feel like if I'm true to who I am, it doesn't matter if I'm rich or poor, I will always be okay. Try to remind myself that every time. Incredible. I love it. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. This has been an amazing conversation. So Sharga, we like to give a call to action to our audience. Are there any ways that we can be helpful to you or to the company? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm raising it around right now, but you know, you already know that. But actually, I'm starting something interesting tomorrow, actually. I'm going to be writing every day for 30 days about African healthcare. And I think that over the past five, six years, just learned a lot about African healthcare. And I want to create a bunch of materials that the next set of healthcare entrepreneurs can use to understand the African healthcare landscape. And so over the next 30 days, as part of the Ship 30 for 30 cohorts, would be writing every day for 30 days. So if you want to, I'll be posting on Twitter and TypeShare mostly. So if people want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is S-O-G-A-T-E-M-I at S-O-G-A-T-E-M-I. Awesome. This has been an amazing conversation. I probably could talk to you for like another two hours, but we really appreciate you taking the time today. It was just a wonderful, wonderful discussion. Absolutely. And this was great for me too. And you asked a lot of great questions. You know how to tease out all the stories. So thank you so much for that.
We'd like to thank our guests, Shorga Oni, and our sponsor, The Plug. This podcast was produced by me, Dan Kihanya, with audio editing and production by We Edit Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen T-O. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. And make sure to tell your friends about us. We so appreciate every new listener. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.